Hello and uh, welcome to another episode of the podcast. I hope you are doing incredibly well or incredibly, um, whatever you're feeling, I hope it's incredible. Whether it's incredible gas, whether it's incredible joy, whether it's an incredible craving. I like the word incredible um, because I just think it's some words need to be um, highlighted more often. I think we need to, just like how we have days of the year, um, I'm just giving you concepts, like you have World um, Mother's Day, you have World um, Observing Silence and Maintaining um, Some Sense of Decorum Day, then you have, uh, you know, Keep Your Opinions to Yourselves, You Asshole Day. I think we need to have that. But Clearly, that's not um, going to happen in the near any time in the near future. But days like that, I think the days getting boring. Earth Day, you know, Planet Day, or um, World Disability Day, or um, whatever the rights of people are. I think it's just ridiculous, right? That we have all these stupid days. Anyway, but what I'm trying to say is that we need to have uh, a day for certain words, which are either abused, used loosely, whatever you want to call it, like awesome or or, I don't know, too many words, clearly. But I think 365 should be fine. I think that should be a thing that I can practice. But incredible, incredible. Credible is something that is um, associated with someone who's credible, a person who's uh, reliable, credible. Ah, he's a credible credible source of information or a credible source of... Uh, it's, it's usually credible is something that you need someone from. He's a credible uh, person for a... To, 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 to sort of borrow money from you uh, because he'll pay back. He's credible. Um, but it's usually in that context, you don't say, he's a credible fuck. Eh? That, you don't say that usually. I don't know why that thoughts either go from finance to fucking. It's a F to F kind of format. B to B, F to F. But uh, hey, there's something I realized. For the longest time now, I get, um, you know, I get a little kind of upset with myself because I find myself getting irritated with with kids, with uh, infants, with uh, the way they behave, the way they, they the way they, they and, and I thought it was because I can't communicate with, especially before they start talking, I can't communicate with babies because I can't make eye contact, I can't really read their body language, and they seem to smell a little bit, they aren't really clean, and they put their fingers in chocolate and they smear in their face, they, they're just pretty messy beings, uh, so I thought it was babies that I was upset with, especially, you know, you have the typical, oh, baby's on a plane, ha ha ha, there goes my flight, but I really thought, and then I, you know, was hard on myself. Going, how can you, how can you be irritated, get irritated, get annoyed with babies or with kids? And I mean, I think from the age of like, you know, infancy to almost six to eight, seven, uh, I, I kind of like, Ugh, just stay away from them, right? Because they just, I don't know, they, they're a bit loud, they're they're a bit kind of unpredictable, and they just suddenly like, woo, woo, sugar, and it just startles me. And um, then I just feel bad going, how can you feel like that? These are kids, they're innocent, the whole rule, they have their whole whole lives ahead of them, and they are basically uh, just kids. Then, then I, I would be hard on myself going, then I'd be, why the fuck you be hard on yourself? These kids have done, you've done nothing, you've just sort of felt, and you have every right to feel the way you do, and then you apply some philosophical filter about, oh, every emotion has a contradictory or has an opposing force. If it's negative, then it has a positive somewhere else. And then I end up going like, ugh. So, Hmm. Exactly. Manifests as gas usually. But then I realized it's not the kids. It's not the infants. It's not the babies. It's not the kids I have a problem with. They are kids. And I think that was a very, very good understanding that I made myself to come to terms with in my mind, saying these are just kids. They are what they are made to be. And of course, certain energy spikes are um, 
obviously going to happen as a result their kids they have a lot of energy and they have a lot of uh, things that are new to them environment or inputs their brain is just discovering the world around them that new things that are being exposed to these brains these senses and they have an overload and i suppose that's we all were that the people I have a problem with are not even the parents parents in many cases of course the parents in some cases of course the parents who knows but it's the people around these parents it's the it's the adults who interact with these kids because if you've noticed maybe you haven't that's why I listen to this podcast that adults react in a very sort of high pitched obnoxious cunty way to kids ooh <coughs> ouch that, that my <coughs> hello like oh it's all extremes it's like oh how it's so cute it's oh everything the kid does incredible amazing cute uh, why i mean that startles me and the kid reacts ooh and like like if the kid falls like oh my god if the kid does something like oh the, the, yeah oh the kid said a word or the kid made a noise oh or, or the kid did something it's it's everything is is exaggerated when adults deal with kids and um, i just find them annoying so kids you guys are cool uh, babies you guys are perfectly fine infants even more incredible but the adults oh, you bastards you know what you do Uh, to these kids you raise them up you build them up you put them on all this pedestal you create all this sense of hopes and you 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 kind of big them up and then you kind of scold them or you whack them you bastards so adults are the problem i think with everything whether it comes to animals with pets us adults singularly a bunch of cunts and i'm so glad that i can say it and i've come to the source of what's annoying me it's not you This shout out this episode goes to all the kids who are listening to it yeah all the infants who listen to this podcast A for appreciation B for this base um construct the C for this uh, cunty perception of the world D for dynamic microphones E for what I can just do this but I probably wouldn't just put you <laughs> anyway i've i'm very happy that i arrived with the source of my annoyance and i'm glad that it's not babies i'm glad it's not children um babies have become children just like tadpoles have become frogs glad it's not that it's not like my problem is that with babies and then it's like oh but i realized yeah it was babies but it's the it's the it's the, it's, it's the so called more mature and fully formed version of a baby which is the adult human which is annoying with um all the things they do it's crazy how we were babies uh, you and i listening right now i mean i'm listening i'm talking i'm listening at the same time i suppose when i talk we were babies and then we grow up and make these babies uh model them into something that we weren't and we aspire to be and feed them with our insecurities and our hopes and the things that we were longing to do in our lives and as a result make them into something that we wanted to be but end up becoming a fucked up form of neither and as a result they push back and then we push back saying no no you must do this because i couldn't do it and then you protect them saying no i was exposed to this it's not good for me therefore it's not good for you it wasn't good for me therefore it's not good for you i tried this it wasn't good for me therefore i'm going to put you through it because i i'm not going to put you through it because i'm going to protect you from it and by protecting them from what we think was bad for us we end up depriving them of that experience and as a result they crave it even more of course not things like oh we fell down a mountain that was bad for us i'm going to think of course certain safety things are good but other things like oh i think the education system's fucked i'm not going to send you to school i'm going to homeschool you and as a result the kids like no but i want to go to school and find out for myself so 
what is the right balance? I don't know. Is it through trial and error? Do you want to try and have trial and error with your kid? Uh, or do you want to be extra safe? Do you want to sort of be the other parent going, nah, do what you want, figure it out. I don't know. I think there's a balance. I think there's a safety net which you need to provide a sense of structure or a sense of this cocoon, this sense of love that they can understand that irrespective of what the world throws at them, of what they try and what they fail and what they might uh, learn and hurt from, that they have this cocoon to come back to. I don't know. Look where this went from. Yeah. But in any case, I think it's the adults. That's what I want to say. Anyhow, let me move on because I have a lovely guest coming on today's episode. He's already here. He's been here. He's done that. He's a dear friend. His name is Scott Capuro. He's a comedian from San Francisco who lives between London and San Francisco with his husband. He um, was gracious enough to join me on the Superior House Show. I like the word gracious as well. The so- Did I just mispronounce the name of my own podcast? The Superior House Show. Said it very Superior House. And Scott and I have been friends for quite a few years. I had, um, what's the word I want to hear? Good fortune or the privilege or the honor. I had um, I had a ball of a time sharing the stage with him in Bangalore. And he was kind enough to give me... Um, no, did he give me a spot? No, he gave me introductions in London when I went for the Edinburgh Fringe back in 2017. But we also met for dinner at a tapas place, a tap-ass place. It was pretty tap-ass. And um, we've been in touch. He's, um, well, he does a bunch of shows across the world, especially in London. He's a regular feature at the Comedy Store, which is a comedy club at Leicester Square, in Leicester Square. You don't say at a square, in Leicester Square. He um, also does shows in the United States of the Americas. He's in California, of course, in San Francisco. He's got, a, he had a special when we first met called Islam Homophobia. He talks about that concept of uh, homophobia in society. And in this episode, you know, it's interesting. I want to get his perspective on how COVID was, the lockdown, of course, in San Francisco, and how married life for him is and was uh, also what sort of the how do people sort of accept him because his husband's from brazil and that community which his husband's from are they're more conservative and how they kind of um, accepted or the kind of issues he faced or him and his husband faced once he got married also i wanted to understand what it's like and what it was for him growing up as a gay person in the 70s and 80s and 90s and how the entire issue of homosexuality was was uh processed by people how it was accepted or was that intolerance and what the landscape looked like compared to 2022 so well needless to say scott is an amazing human being he's a a lovely gentleman he's a really funny comedian and i'm very lucky to call him a friend so you will enjoy this episode you can thank me later and i'll thank you now for listening to this episode do share it with someone you love or someone you like or someone you can well maybe just tolerate a little bit yeah and this goes out as i said to all the babies the infants and the children out there yeah much appreciated enjoy the episode till next time goodbye god bless take care of yourselves and cheers Scott Kapuro, my dear friend, welcome to the Sophie Rao Show. I think it's an official welcome to my podcast. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? How are you? I'm good. I'm so glad when uh, it felt weird. I mean, uh, Somnath sent me um, um, a sort of screen grab of what you had sent. And I'm like, I know Scott. And <laughs> I was like, oh, it, was, it felt really good to hear uh, from you. And uh, thanks for, uh, you know, coming on the show. And uh, 
how you been? It's I think we met last in 2017 at that just after the fringe. I think when I stopped by in London after Edinburgh, and I think since we then we went to dinner at a really nice restaurant. You had your friends with you, and, and you're I think uh, a yes. companion. Yes, my wife uh, <laughs> and a few of her friends, and uh, and you. Uh, we I, I forget what that place was. I you know I think that was the first sort of time I've actually spent more than 24 hours in London, and it was quite uh, interesting. Like you know a lot of the post work i think i went out one night the, bef- the night before i met you to soho and another night when we went out and, and i think oh the next day i was i was terribly hungover and almost missed the flight but anyway that's a, that's a, yeah that's 5 years 6 years ago 5 years ago but uh, what have you been right. up to since then um, um uh you know trying to um become famous i've been doing <laughs> um stand up Mm. And then I was writing a one-person show for the Edinburgh Fringe in 2018 that I was touring in the U.S. Mm-hmm. about. Um, I, I found out that, well, I knew that a relative of mine, my uncle's cousin, mm. uh, sorry, yeah, my, my dad's, sorry, my dad's uncle, my grandfather's cousin, right, on my father's side, Capurro, had been a Broadway star in the 1950s. Ah, okay. And I knew that he had... He was super famous. I met him once when I was a tiny kid. And then he lived in New York. He used to see my family in San Francisco when he was touring California with one of his musicals. He was a huge musical comedy star. In the first Oklahoma, he introduced, Oh, what a beautiful morning to Broadway. The first Kismet production. Yes, so he was this big, right. And he won four Tonys. And I knew about him, obviously. But, of course, he was like a myth in my family. Like, you have Mm -hmm. one successful person in your family. This was that guy. Right. So, is Capuro Italian? Just, just... Capuro. But his stage name was Alfred Drake. Oh, that sounds... That sounds nice. <laughs> I like yeah. that name too. And um, he changed it because his brother had the same last name as he did. And his brother was a singer at the Metropolitan Opera. And in his union, you can't have the same last name. So he changed his completely to Alfred Drake to also get rid of the ethnicity in his name. Because, you know, 100 years ago in the U.S., Italians were seen in a different light than they are. So now. there was a bias against them, right? Back in the there 50s. Was. Right. You know, it's so interesting you mentioned that because I was random, randomly sort of just sort of looking through some 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 podcast options a few months back, maybe even six months back, and this whole uh, series on the Chippendale dancers came up, and I was fascinated with that whole movement and how I didn't know this, but I mean, not like it makes a difference in my life. But I, did you know like the Chippendale? You know about the Chippendale dancers, right? Which started I off. Do, yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, the entire thing was started off by an Indian guy. A Bengali guy. Oh, really? Right. I didn't know that. So he found uh, obviously these male dancers, and then I think there was some other guy who was an American um, sort of producer from. I'm not sure of the exact details, but he kind of made the Chippendale act so sort of um, you know kind of coveted, so people would fly them across the world. They became the kind of like the the divas that of you know which which we kind of hear male about male strippers, male strippers, <laughs> but also like the following that these women who were. I won't say desperate housewives, but they were these who couldn't really express their their kind of outward need for entertainment. They would and it became like this entire choreographed, this big larger than life act. And I found that quite. I mean, I find I never have been for a show, but it's quite amazing when you hear of these things. And just with your uncle, then the Broadway kind of phenomenon is so it's so so much larger than life sometimes, and you kind of don't connect that this person is in my family, right? It's quite cool. Yeah. 
It's true. It's true. Yeah. I grew up watching Broadway performers on TV, mm. you know, hoping to emulate them someday because I started as an actor. Mm. And I knew of this person, again, in our history. But you're right. He seemed like this huge figure that, you know, I could never have any contact with. And that's why when I called him, the first time I was in New York in the early 90s, mm-hmm. I was there doing some stand-up. I called him on a public phone and I reached him at his apartment in New York. Mm-hmm. He's probably only about two kilometers away from where I was calling. But it seems so far in a different world, even the way he spoke in that sort of standardized stage English in the U.S., which sounds kind of British, but not really. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. He thought that I was my father when he was speaking to me. Because he was old and a bit senile, probably, but also he didn't, he probably had never met me really as an adult, obviously. So he referred to me as my dad by my father's name, Nicholas. Mm. And he started to ask me all these questions about my mother, who he mm. would have met, but whom my parents had, they separated long before. And saying these things to me about my mother that I didn't know. Mm. Like my mother had a beautiful mezzo soprano voice. Is your mother still singing? Is your wife still singing? He asked me, Nick. Is your wife still singing? Mm. And then I told my dad this recently because because of COVID, we've been spending more time together because I'm waiting for him to drop dead. I want his money. And, I, and he, um, I really want that money. And he... Um, is, your, is your uncle around though? Sorry. Is this uncle around? <laughs> well, he's 86 and smokes all day long and drinks, but he's fine. Who, it's really... Your Broadway uncle? No, no, sorry. This is my dad. Oh, your dad. Okay, no, but your Broadway uncle... Man, Alfred Drake, his, you know, he's been dead for quite a long time. Okay, he he's... Be really, he, yeah, yeah. Okay. He's my grandfather's age. He's my... He was my grandfather's cousin. Okay, so he's he. This was in the nineties when you called him from the public phone, right? I called him. It was right, and he was he he was still he's still now quite well known. The myth of him is the name after Drake, but at the time, obviously his career, his live career, had ended. But he was still on TV a little bit. People still knew who he was. Hmm. And um, my dad recently outed him to me, and told me he was gay. And oh, he was gay. Had, Alfred yeah, Alfred Drake. Drake was gay, not my father, okay. that Alfred Drake was gay. Right, no, your dad, and, um, of course, you would know, right, if he was. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And right. my dad is not, he's not, he's not gay worthy. But anyway. Um, <laughs> okay, okay, yeah, you need to define that. Yeah, but... Broadway, you, cu- you got a couple of Tonys, the gays love you, right? Right, so, absolutely. Um, uh, but so I, I'd written a show about that, about my father outing all, all this stuff that we just discussed. Right. And um, the last time I did the show was March of 2020. In mm. California, and then the COVID happened. Oh no! I did. I think you put. I think you had reached out to me it was 2019. You had planned something, and you, you kindly, you were kind enough to think of me when p- pitching the lineup for comedians at a brewery somewhere outside San Francisco. Remember that when oh, you maybe. reached out to me? That was a yeah, while maybe. back. And yeah, yeah. Um, then everything sort of just went out of sync because of the yeah. lockdown. And I know, really I remember, we all just sort of lost contact with everything. It was so str- like it's like there's yeah. a, a breakdown of every every sort of communication. It was so strange. I mean, especially with um, you know, we would of course communicate if we were traveling to each other's cities. But even otherwise, generally, how's it going? And this thing, you know, I would just you know send out a thing like you know if I'm coming stateside or coming to the UK or you you would right. you would sometimes drop a message. But I mean, that entire sort of connect with with the, the kind of common ground, which was stand up kind of just disappeared under our feet. So we didn't really communicate for those two years. But I saw that you had put up a a clip a while back. And that was, uh, I forget that which, that, it was to do with um, 
the yeah during lockdown i think you'd put up something about masks and about the thing and i found that quite hilarious and you your turnaround time with that material was quite good because everyone was sort of trying to find an angle which was not repetitive right and i think that was really nice the way you were talking about it i, I am i mistaken about that clip i think you put something out no, right it's, it's probably too my husband and i decided to go online on igtv every night right and we just we were just i was churning out material as often as i could Nice. And I was releasing some of the clips on Facebook and on Instagram and on Twitter from the show. If I thought they were particularly interesting, I would have released them. Mm. We were just busy on social media for a year because there was nothing else, was there, until... Mm. How do you adapt to that? Because I know you are quite a quite a fan of the picking on the audience and kind of integrating them into your set and you've mm. done that in Bangalore and you kind of uh, the shows you've done here especially I think when you came in 2015, 2014, 2015, but uh how is that online experience because a lot of comedians including myself i mean uh, a lot of people do it still because especially when they're people like we'll pay you for a corporate gig online i'm like i'll do it but did you enjoy it or did you adapt and how is that experience it almost killed me the zoom stuff mm. i uh i stopped doing it completely uh sometime in 2021 the igtv made sense to me because that was a setup in our home and my husband was involved and there were people watching that were fans of the radio I do in California. Right, and right. So, right, so we had a something of a fan base. And it seemed like, it actually seemed like a regular gig that I could look forward to each night. It kind of put, it put some sort of form to mm. our day because the days became formless during COVID for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. And it puts a structure into our lives. Like we knew we had to do that that night. It would make me think about material. But once the Zoom gigs started and the Zoom yoga, because I'm a yoga practitioner. Right. It it really messed up my health. I had to stop. And actually, about shows? a year ago in March, I had a little, I wouldn't say a breakdown, mm. but I would say a moment where I hit a wall where I thought, when is this going to end? I don't know if you remember, but March of last year, there was another wave of something and then another shutdown of the clubs and then another yeah. lockdown. And I, I, um, I became morbid about mm. it all. And about I've, you're saying about the entire situation with COVID and the pandemic and the lockdown, yeah. right? Right, right. I mean, no, and you uh, spent one no, sec. Just sorry, just for context, you spent the 2020 lockdown and this 2021 episode happened when you were in San Francisco, or were you in London? But to and from, we were in London less. Right. We were still traveling back because my husband was finishing his degree in law. Right. He, he did adult education for three years during all this, and then. Right. <laughs> I was hoping to come back. Our, also, they'd done some construction on our building, so I had to be here because the, mm. yeah. So we, we were doing all that, mm. pretending we were busy just to keep our minds together. The, yeah. the, the, really, we were making ourselves busy. And then um, we went back to the US and that was when it, it kicked off. We were in California. Mm. And we, we were in California. I'd gone to Brazil with my husband, so we were busy traveling and stuff as much as we actually could safely. Yeah, yeah, because that's we, another we, headache, right? Being yeah. quarantined, travel, Same. all that kind of stuff, yeah. And my husband at that point, you know, didn't hit Brazil right away, the COVID, but it did eventually, and he lost a lot of people. So we were dealing with all that, like everyone else. Yeah. Dealing with the stress of, Ooh, you know, is he, is, he, is he from Sao Paulo? Near Sao Paulo, yes, you're because right. Because Sao Paulo yeah. is in a bad shape. I was like reading about some episodes yeah. happening now with their own form of racial violence against, oh. especially the African immigrants, and it's pretty miserable <laughs> what's going on, and the food crisis, and... All sorts you know, of you, stuff. Yeah, if you ask some Brazilians what's the history of, of you know, Afro, Afro-Brazilians in this country, they'll tell you that they're not Brazilians because they're black. It's a real problem there. 
It's a real skin color, not just color, but tone. Skin tone from mm -hmm. light to dark is a big thing, not just in Brazil, but a lot, a lot of the world, but definitely there. Yeah. And the poverty travels north as the skin color becomes darker. It's really awful. Whereas at the same time, you're in Rio and it's such a beautiful city and it's so much fun. Topography is gorgeous and the people are lovely and everyone's getting along. So it's... Oh, Rio it's, is well, a lot more tolerant and fun than Sao Paulo? Well, no, they're both, they're, well, they're both in the south and, and a lot of the wealth is there and the, the political power is around there. So mm -hmm. I think people, I felt safe. I'm a white man, but I felt safe in Sao Paulo. Right. I didn't. I, I'm just reminding people. I didn't feel <laughs> in case they're not watching the as I heard that Sao Paulo can be quite dangerous. It didn't seem that way to me. Right. But of course, my husband knows it, and we stayed in the areas where most tourists reside. But you're right. Poverty, racism. Famously, there's been films made where police shoot young kids in the streets for several different reasons. So it's it, and you know the politicians who run the country right now. You know, Bolsonaro is famously a, a horrible homophobic, racist, misogynist who has said awful thing. And all that stuff sets up, a, you know, well, a bit like in India politically, let's be honest. The, mm. the top leaders, when they're as decrepit and corrupt as they can be, it sets up a tone throughout the country that's not helpful for people. I mean, it's happening repeatedly uh, across the globe, right? It's, it seems to be uh, a very sort of opposite ends pulling each other where it seems like on ground you have these kind of people coming to power who are kind of regressive and then online you have this entire um the the, the woke generation and the the extra liberal kind of front which is just sort of shouting and you have Greta Thunberg who's probably going to blow a blood vessel anytime soon just shouting at the trees or something it just seems like it's so much noise but i've you know heard repeatedly and also you know kind of episodes about how uh, San Francisco, and I've been there. I've been there as early as 2016 mm -hmm. for a comedy show and even before. And I kind of liked the place. Like, um, I saw how it was a lot more uh, people are struggling with identity in 2016. They were trying to sort of, mm -hmm. whether it was their Latinness or whether it was their gender, uh, uh, sexuality. It was, people are just kind of being very loud about it when I went back in 2016. Mm -hmm. But I've heard, and of course, this I want to hear it from someone who's from there and also lives there. How is it? Because you hear about this entire, the, the, the drug problem, the homeless problem, um, but also just with the entire intolerance building up. And you're a person who's gay and you're married and you've been out and you celebrate life. And I know that you have a good time and you're open about making jokes about yourself and about uh, being gay and about living in a marriage with a husband and a partner. And and I, I love those jokes. And we've we've met a few times and we've spoken about it. And what is your thought process? Well, I want to get to this later, but since we're on it, we might as well start. Um, but what, what are your senses about uh, the, the sort of goings on right now in that space? Well, I think um, I think for some people, political identity is 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 what defines them. Mm -hmm. And I think that the conversation, and it's not just about Trump; it's about the left as well. The conversation, mm -hmm. like you said, became very black and white. It became it became a lot of noise, and there was very little gray area. Yeah, where it's less savage to talk things out, which is part of the reason why my husband and I prefer to spend some of our time or most of our time in the UK. Mm. One reason is he's British, but also because I think it's less loud here. Is particularly it? Okay. in social media. Yeah. Right. Nice. And particularly in a place like San Francisco, where where lines have been drawn, 
Mm. And people are taking sides. But a lot of that is around a, a sense of loss. Mm. Because those identity communities like gay and straight have become, again, like you said with young people, it's become, it's become blurred. They're less concerned because those, there have been certain rights have been gained. And the so they're less concerned? Sorry, can you explain that? I, I, I didn't, less well, concerned. I think with marriage equality in California, I think that battle around, and, and, and even gays being allowed into the military, allowed to adopt, I think those battles about inequality have been won in California. Okay. And so now Which is the a good question thing. is, right. well, now the question is, what, what, what battle do we have left? Because people like right. to fight in the U.S. They want, mm. they, want a, they want a common enemy. It brings them together. And the, the battles have become the right and left now. Okay, right. so the thing is, you're saying that equality in some aspects of life have been achieved. So now, instead of saying, you know, let's let's celebrate in this what life we have and rights we've been given, mm-hmm. instead of that it's like what what's next? Yeah, well, like like when the Cold War ended yeah. between Russia and between the USSR and America, suddenly the enemies were internal, and suddenly mm-hmm. there was a war on drugs and a war on you know uh, city violence and a war on all the stuff that was within the country, because we yeah. always, always need something to fund us emotionally right. and, and financially. But I don't see, I mean, it, 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 it's become in San Francisco, I've lost friends recently. Um, so for example, since you ask over the COVID battle. Now, look, I, I am vaccinated so I can travel and so I can go to yoga class. Yeah. But believe me, that's the only reasons. Those are the only reasons I have a healthy immune system. I also have fears and doubts over the way the whole thing's been handled. I'm not crazy. I don't think there's a conspiracy. I don't think someone's inventing a disease to kill everybody, all that. But I do wonder. I'm just I'm just curious yeah. about it, about why things have been handled a certain way, about why certain doctors aren't listened to, about why certain nurses aren't getting the vaccine. And when you ask these questions in San Francisco, you literally lose long-term friendships. People oh, when you go, say you lost friends, you lost connections, oh, you lost relationships. Okay, I thought to COVID. Yes. Okay, okay. People just canceled. They completely canceled me. And I, I do think a cancel culture exists. Not because I think, again, there's a conspiracy to get rid of liberal artists. Yeah. I don't think that's it. What I think is people just turn their, they turn the sound off. They can't even converse. And that's no, but a, isn't a very, that such very, a scary place to be? Hard. And I know for just generally for social progress... As you mentioned, the gray area, which I find the best place to be because you kind of can make a statement, admit that you're wrong if you're wrong, and you have time to rebuild an argument and also say, okay, you know, I'm going to broaden my horizon, expand my thoughts and say, okay, acknowledge that I was wrong in my way of thinking about this, but thanks for giving me a second chance and educating me because there's no space for that kind of error in the left or right because you're you're out of the group. As you said, you're cancelled or you're yeah. demonized or you're ostracized for the way of uh, way saying something. But... Isn't this thing, especially for the groups, let's, let's be honest, the ones which are the most, um, the most sort of heard because they're most loud, like the LGBTQ um, so-called community, isn't that <clears throat> they're here uh, with the, 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 the rights? And of course, I'd like you to also maybe contrast because you came out in a different time, right? You came out to your mm-hmm. family and friends in a different time. So maybe can you contrast that because just the importance of how a healthy conversation or even a debate or listening to someone 
versus this, where you're just sh- shouting someone down and they don't suit your agenda. Can you mm-hmm. kind of contrast that, look, like being married uh, with your partner, with your husband at this time, coming out, I don't know when you came out, if you can talk about that, contrast that with what's going on now and maybe also talk about what this lack of conversation or this lack of ability to kind of hear someone out from the other differing view, what it does mm-hmm. to your mindset, especially being gay in today's day and age? Well, I think it's interesting you ask me. I think that people forget that the previous pandemic, um, HIV AIDS, uh, mm. really united the community that I matured into. Mm-hmm. And in the 80s and 90s, you know, um, that battle brought the LGBT community together. Yeah. In, in a con- I mean, th- thank God for the lesbians because they, they, they organized so many events and, and kept an eye on things while gay men were losing their fucking minds for obvious reasons. Yeah. I mean, I lost so many friends that you're not prepared when you're 23 to go to a memorial service for your closest friend. You're not emotionally capable of it. Most people aren't. You lost them and to that, AIDS? That, you pardon lost me? Them to, you lost them to HIV, to AIDS? Yeah, I mean, I would go to an art exhibit of people who died. I remember going to one in like 1990 and seeing friends of photographs of, of, of victims and seeing oh. loads of people in that exhibit I hadn't seen in a couple weeks. I didn't know who died. People would die in their homes overnight, not show up to work. That you, you, people would die at the McDonald's parking lot waiting for a burger. I mean, people were trying to function and their bodies just completely quit. It, it was every day you were hearing about it. And I was also trying to tell my family I was queer mm. at the time. And it was, you know, my, some of my family members were bigoted and this just fed their bigotry. So it was a, it was a, a real... A lot of people I knew went through all this kind of stress and trauma. And then the, 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 the public anger from the White House that was just demonizing gay men. We had to educate ourselves and act up about what was going on with our health. Mm. And then approach the doctors who knew less than we did at the time. So it was incredibly exciting as well. It was mm. sexually charging, to be honest. And it was a real unifying element of our community. And without that battle, without that, not that AIDS has gone away, it hasn't clearly, but without that struggle to define us, I think that the left, especially in my community, has become hmm, less defined. Mm. And if you're defining yourself in a certain way your whole life, and then that's that definition is, is, is blurred, then you become threatened yeah. and suspicious of other people. So I agree with you. I mean, I'm doing some television now for a network in, in the UK that's that most social media outlets have decided is right wing. It's just been labeled that way. You can't get around it. That's just what it is. Okay. So right. that's who you are now. So suddenly I'm a right wing comedian because this gig has been offered to me and I took it because I'm a comic. You know what it's like. Yeah. And suddenly now I'm on TV all the time with this network. Mm. And people are saying, my, my accountant contacted me and said, are you okay? Why? Well, we saw you on GB News. Are, what, what, what's happened to you? What are your politics? I'm like, my politics are none of your fucking business. Was yeah. I funny? But also, I've been, because I'm a gay man who's not behaving in a certain way, which means I should be left wing, I'm gay, I should be left yeah. embracing, I should be, my politics should be totally wet and agreeable to everybody on the left. You should be anti-vax, you should be anti-mask, you should be, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because I'm not, do because I think that, that masks at this point are a bit silly. If I even say that, I lose a thousand followers on Twitter and these people who are my accountancy, who look after my taxes are calling me at home, worried about me, about my yeah. mental health. That's a bit ridiculous. So it's, yeah. this is what it, it, 
there's the, the idea, since we're both comedians, the idea that you can make jokes about something that may be, you know, representative of, of a community that isn't yours, for instance. If I talk about, you know, well, the left said this about the subject, but, you know, but the right's been handling it a bit better because they've said this, you know, there's no room for that. Mm. That feels like for some people. I, I'm noticing more and more of that, like you have to uh, kind of have a cause in your comedy. Oh, and yeah. um, that's such a singer right? by your father. Something has to have happened that made you a disaster. That's put you mm. on stage as a comic. That's why you're so messed up. Or yes, mm. you have to be, you know, a lesbian with horns in a wheelchair. Or it's good to be black and young. Or all these identifiers that, that make you seem diverse. When really, what I was just talking to comedians about this in Manchester this weekend. What made it, what makes comedians diverse is their experience. Ah, that's like something which I would totally agree and appreciate that you said that. Because, you know, when we met in Bangalore, we, I was just talking, because, of course, you have many more years in this comedy industry. And I was just asking you, because I've been told uh, in my thing as well that, hey, you call yourself the blind comedian, you play the blind card. And, 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 and talking to someone who has this thing that people will expect you to sort of wear on your, on your sleeve, like the gay comedian. But what I, what I noticed in something which um, you do and you kind of weave in the the fact that you're gay. I mean, of course, you're not hiding it by any means, but you weave it into your material really well. And of course, you do talk about it, um, and you don't you don't abstain from you know talking about your gay experience or experiences as a gay man. And that's something I do as well because I, I can't take away my eye condition, but at the same time, I don't have to flaunt it as the victim. And I think that's something which you just said now is that adversity helps you gain a perspective that gives you strength in the face of people rejecting you for who you are. But you mm. also the same thing. Kind of my, my mom told me, she's like, don't have to uh, flaunt it saying, oh, feel bad for me, but go about do it because when you go about doing and living life with this, you just get, develop a sense of strength, which kind of makes you um, makes you a little more resilient to the mm. stuff that which which will eventually stuff that will eventually hit you. And I think now the narrative is opposite and especially in, in all aspects of life and comedy, since we're both comedians, is that it's almost like you have to have these three four things like the more labels you can tag along like saying as you said if, if you're black if you're if you're if you're a single mother and you're gay and you're sort of a lesbian and you have a, a child with a disability the the quicker you get spots <laughs> it's just i don't know what it is but why why does a comedian have to have um so many labels versus the complexity of the experiences that make them that unique individual and human being right which is i find stupid like it's almost like i'm a woman i'm gay why aren't you giving me a spot i'm like because you're not fucking funny that's <laughs> yeah it's, it's 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 bigotry it's it's just yeah. old school bigotry and homophobia misogyny in action actually to be honest with you i just think it's 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 a yeah it's I think almost like a reverse also, right yeah yeah i think it, it it's it's bad for the audience because it lowers their their expectations of what comedy can be but it's terrible mm -hmm. for the comedians who aren't prepared for any sort of success yet because they haven't learned how to do stand-up or tell a joke. Yeah. And you put them in a position, say, perhaps, I don't know, of being in front of a thousand people, it, it must be just, unless they're incredibly arrogant and almost brain dead, it must be a horrible feeling for them. Mm. And But but I don't care what, I don't care if someone's a tail and they're pink. If they're funny, it, it doesn't, you know, and some people are funny right away and they're ready right away for success. Most aren't, they have to experience a bit more. But I also feel like, you know, it's great that I've, the idea of putting diverse comedians on stage. It's great that you, you can now put two or three women in a bill and people don't think it's a female comedy night. It's yeah. great you can put two gay people in a bill. It's not a gay night. But, and it's, believe me, it's much easier, for, I think, 
it's there's much more accessibility with the audience depending yeah. on like you know i used to have to come out to every audience when i first started and yeah. i don't obviously do that anymore and i don't think gay communities are expected to and i don't think uh you know i i don't i don't think people are thrown if a woman comic walks on stage whereas really when i first came over in the 90s yeah when a woman's name was announced over the loudspeaker people would boo and i don't think that's going to happen anymore are you serious that's okay that's a bit okay oh, yeah It might I mean, because I had to do the same money. thing. I had to explain what a disability, uh, what an eye condition I had. I, and still people would come after, they're like, oh, that part about your eyesight, that that's a part of your act? I'm like, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, Lenny Bruce had used to dis- describe what the word dyke was because the audience didn't know dyke was a lesbian or what that meant. But we are now past and beyond that. So we yeah. can speak in shorthand to a mainstream audience, which is, fa- believe me, it's fantastic. And I, yeah. I love a diverse bill. I love seeing all sorts of comedy on stage. But when I think of diverse, because I'm from California, I grew up in San Francisco, of course I grew up in a gay and lesbian vegan cafe doing stand-up. So I yeah. saw, believe me, people from all walks of life. To me, diversity is more about economic backgrounds than yeah. skin color. Right. That's just how my mind works because of where I'm from. And when I used to introduce comics when I first started in the 90s, of course I never mentioned their genders. I might get it wrong. In San Francisco, who knows what that person is? It's their business to tell you, not mine. So I'm accustomed to the pronoun thing. It's perfectly fine. Whatever people want to call themselves, I don't care. But don't call me a cis male. Don't non-binary me. Don't label me with all your garbage that you want to use to defend yourself because that's your thing, not mine. That's mm. your shtick. That's your joke. You shouldn't waste it on me. That's part of your material. That should come up in your act. You should write jokes about it and not become some sort of, I don't know, Oh, some sort of a patriot online where you're defending your community. Nobody cares. Be funny. You're not an activist. You're a comedian. And whatever activism that includes, then use comedy to define yourself. The only time I get offended is when I watch a comedian waste the, the audience's time on stage when they seem as though they don't want to be there or they don't seem, seem comfortable. Then yeah. don't get up there. You know? Yeah. If you don't have a joke about who you are, then why are you telling me who you are? Don't tell me show me it's boring to hear your lecture i don't care this isn't a seminar show me where the jokes are be funny so to me diversity is really particularly in san francisco because you asked yeah that's where the problem is now because it's it's producing more wealth than anywhere else in the world in the history of mankind because facebook and google are all there so with that kind of wealth it's going to create losers poverty as you may define it so The, that's where the problem is. That's where the drugs appear. That's where the homeless appear. I don't think these people are a danger to anyone other than themselves. And in fact, yeah. my husband and I were just walking through a homeless community in San Francisco a few weeks ago, and he got a booster shot, and we had lunch. It was actually lovely, that area, because people were nice and said hello and made eye contact as you walked by. So I don't see that as a threat to my own safety. What I see it as is obviously for them a lack of safety because they're living on the street. So how can we take care of this? And these are the, where the problems and the issues arise, I think. And this is where comedy can help, I think. Yeah. No, there's a sense of... And you know what sadly happens is that a lot of people just sort of follow practices that come from America or come from... And I think Europe is a little bit, as you said, maybe a little more subtle. They're a little bit... They take some time before jumping on to new concepts or they're maybe a little more critical of it. And I think the Brit... The, especially since you live in England, I think the, 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 the English maybe the Scots and even the Irish, I think and the Welsh, of course, we have to include the Welsh, are, I think they're just, they're a little more cynical and they're just like, ah, I don't know. You know, of course, it's there everywhere. But I find it amazing in India sometimes when people act woke and it's almost like they have this pronoun kind of debate going on when I'm like, 
Okay, fair enough. You know, as you as you said, very sort of aptly. Okay, if you want to call yourself whatever pronoun, go ahead and call it. But don't call don't call me out for not doing or using the right pronoun, or don't call out someone for not using the right pronoun when when we clearly have much bigger issues to address before we get there. I'm not saying that gender equality is not important. Of course, it is, but. This I, and I see this happening where people are like, you need to acknowledge your privilege and be aware that you can't. You, I'm like, fuck off, dude. I mean, honestly speaking, I didn't have a say in it. I'm appreciative of it, but I'm not going to wake up every morning and go to someone who's not privileged saying, I'm sorry that I'm privileged. It's ridiculous what's going on, right? So well, I yeah, and I understand that. And you yeah. are you, you, yes, and I remember where you live and you have a lovely house. I remember. And, oh yeah, um, we're not was, yeah we're not there anymore. But yeah, I mean, oh, right, I, definitely, right. we're in a, I'm in a good place, no doubt about it. Yeah. But you can't go I remember around. A lo- gorgeous. I, I, you were the one of the first people that I ever used Airbnb. I'm not Airbnb. Sorry, Uber with. Yes, yes. That and was... I remember, uh, like, like uh, in my mind, this effing limo came to pick me up. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the driver was so sweet. I was like, God, this is great. It's great to be privileged in India. But yeah. also, um, of course, you're right. You didn't. You didn't create you know you didn't ask for it It just happened but also i think you know i think name changes happen all the time people change the name of streets or towns or who they are i mean in america african-americans are called something different than they were called 20 years ago and then 20 years before that it's it's kind of our obligation as privileged white men to be honest it is a little bit of our obligation to keep up but also i enjoy it too because i think language and it's uh, and it's variance is one of the tools we use in comedy to make jokes yeah. If you, we play with language, especially like, like you said in the UK. The English are a bit obsessed with definitions of language and accents, and if you can toy with that, they really yeah. love it. And I agree with you. Mm. The British can be a bit cynical about general opinions. They're yeah. also it's a combination of cynicism and arrogance, where they think it's not going to happen to us because we're better than that. So yeah. there's that, which is one of the reasons why the pandemic hit so hard in this country at the beginning. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons why they still are able to joke about it on stage. And I think that's important. But, See, I think being cynical, yeah. I think being all that is great. The fact is, I think, and I don't think anything should be off bounds. And this is coming from a guy who's heard his fair share of blind jokes, which, of course, one is more lame than the other. And I'm waiting for a good blind joke. The sad part is I have to crack it myself. And <laughs> it's it's lazy, man. It's like, oh, my God, guys, can you, uh, I mean, can you not, you know, what it, what annoys me when it, when it goes past an individual trying to make a joke to a mob trying to bully you. That's what bugs yeah. me. I don't like that about yeah. any group politics or yeah. group identity, right? Where you yeah. give up the complexity of what makes you a person and I, that person could be a bunch of things, could be a woman, could be lesbian, could be a mother, yeah. could be a sister, yeah. but you give up all of that for one aspect of your identity and then you make yeah. someone feel like shit because they're not, um, they don't reflect that identity and I think that's annoying. But yeah. I don't know, like, do you feel and you spoke about this, but a comedy is a great tool, which and many people have called it a mirror to society. But when you're not allowed to talk about it, then what do you do? I mean, do you how much do you fight back, or do you just surrender and say, you know what, I'm going to take a break? And you're you're more of of course now you have this gig with the GB News uh, um, platform, but how do you make a living? Because I'm I'm also kind of just reevaluating. I've been doing this for 12 years, 13 years now almost and i love this format what we're doing right now podcasting we're talking because we have time to kind of take a topic and break it apart or take a thought and kind of understand it but i mean from the zoom shows to just sort of how you getting a netflix gig is more about popularity than just content there's so many things you learn about the industry which aren't always about merit or being funny how have you navigated it uh i mean of course with all the things we mentioned being um in in this kind of climate of 
people not wanting to hear certain things to this climate of um, you have to kind of say uh, the right thing to a to a right group or with this entire ott platforms coming up so just just a sense of you being a live performer a performer for live gigs and road comic to uh, shuttling between san fran and london it's not a question so so much as it's a gauge of where things are for you well i just i i kind of i stick to my guns it's all i have and that is i just do what i think is funny and i think communities audiences jokes change all the time e- either they evolve or digress but but the the whole atmosphere of a stand up club each night is what i try to listen to and respond to i try to be where i am at that moment i okay. think the audience prefers that and i i think there's a way to deliver jokes even as unpalatable or impalatable or as distasteful as they may seem there's a way to deliver them and if you can find that technique that's what experience provides and i think mm. you know i still talk about what i I I still want to change people's minds about the way gay men are allowed to behave. Mm-hmm. So that's always in the back of my mind, you know. And then um I I don't care what the audience feels. I know that's terrible to say. I mm-hmm. I care what they think and right. I care that they enjoy themselves, but feelings are transient. They change all the time. And if someone raises their hand during a show hasn't happened in a while and says I'm feeling unsafe, I can't imagine or or I'm feeling offended, then I mean I will deal with that as it happens. Mm. If they have a thought like I think this or that then we can have a conversation. Yeah. But feelings are personal and they have nothing to do with me and the, the lights are pointed my way. And the exit door is for you if you're offended. And really it's a live performance so expect to be surprised or else stay home, drink wine and watch Netflix and and, and don't come to a live show. I mm. I just think I make a living by by telling jokes and I I I I you know if one person doesn't think a joke is funny it doesn't mean the joke isn't funny it means they don't like it. Yeah. And I can't offend someone I don't know them in a live audience. They're strangers to me and the likelihood is I'll never see them again. Mm. And so really for me the show is about what's happening right then right there with what's going on in my life with my husband's life. Even when I'm on this network that I perform on they haven't limited subject matter. They give me a list like everyone of words we can't say obviously because of Ofcom and we'll be, you know, fined. But yeah. I mean every comic faces that, but subject matter, they they want us to just go for it. Oh sorry, one second. You said you get fined so because it's oh, television. You know, well, you know, intelligence in whatever country if you say like if you say motherfucker or whatever, they'll be, you know, you get in trouble. So there's a list of those words I can't say. I mean, can't they just but censor they it or edit it out? Um, well, some of the TV's live. So, oh right okay it's live and there's no 5 second delay on this network. Oh so, you, so okay. Um, okay okay. Yeah. But listen, even on radio or TV in the US where they have like 10 second delays and something if you swear there's it's a big it's a big problem. <laughs> maybe okay. maybe not so in other countries but in in most countries I work in yeah there's a yeah you got to be careful. And I you know what I like that too. No in because our country it, in India it's even it's even more tight because I worked at oh, a radio station for about 2 years, one and a half years, maybe a few years. There. And you can't even say the words like Hindu or you can't even say the word Muslim because you don't want to plant any seed in the listener's head. And I'm like I didn't say anything good or bad. I mean I'm not going to yeah, yeah. say a thing, but you just can't say these things. You can't encourage a line of thinking which might 
be a person in the traffic light saying this guy on radio said hindu i'm going to go i hate hindus you know it's yeah, it's yeah. yeah it's it's almost like you're treating them like ticking time bombs and all they need is this one word as a trigger like the manchurian candidate just to sort of send them out of spite seriously you know? <laughs> i know what you mean in california i've been told that i can't use the word jesus on the air whoa okay so yes you're right apparently everyone is one lap dance away from exploding from shooting one another we are pretty close to cave people let's face it and um, yeah well they were probably more practical and safe than we are but more so, capable yeah, in some ways as well <laughs> yeah exactly um uh and, and more organic but yeah so we yeah. have to find a way in those limitations whatever they are to be funny which i enjoy yeah you know i remember if you i remember if, i wonder if you heard about when when there was a famous comedian uh Jerry Seinfeld in the U.S., who's still touring, very funny. Mm. But he had an issue a few years back with a joke he told where some students didn't respond well. And he took it to television, made a kind of a thing about it, about how students are so woke, they don't get it, they won't listen, they shut their ears off. And then he told the joke on The Tonight Show um, in America late at night, and the joke just wasn't funny. That, see, so I have a problem, problem with that, whether it's Seinfeld or, and, uh, or, or whether it's you or me. Now, we can go in the opposite sort of war path saying how dare they limit my thing students these days are stupid they have no but if the jokes aren't funny then you can't defend an unfunny joke as a comedian yeah. right it just wasn't yeah and i think the students you know when i play universities which i enjoy in the us or or younger audiences i really enjoyed here too you it, it's my job i'm almost i'll be 16 in a few months and it's my job to find out what people 40 years younger than me are thinking about and talking about you know they pay us quite well to do those games the least yeah. we can do is do a couple hours of research also it's funner to do that because mm. then it alters your material you might write some new jokes and mm. You want it. You want to find a way in a room full of strangers to make your audience, your, your your material familiar and palpable. That's always been our job. How is it any different with young people who who may may or may not be woke? I don't really care about that definition. It's kind of useless. But also, maybe there is a, a community of transgender people at a certain university, and maybe you have to reach them. What have you got? And that's that's fun. Right, and they may be young and self-identified and think of themselves as very important, and their issues might be something that it's all they can concentrate on. But then it's your job to dig them out of that hole. That's what you do. And you that's my thing. I totally agree with. I totally. Something. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you because I think sometimes even comedians put themselves on a pedestal, saying, "Oh, this stupid society. They don't get me, and I, I don't get you know." And, and I. I think as a comedian, sometimes you get caught up, caught up with the few, and I think the internet, especially the, mm. the videos which go viral, are of the few people who we repeatedly hear from, right? And they keep saying this thing, whether it's a few students, the few activists, the few, the few transgender people. And I don't think all students think like these people or all yeah. transgender people think like these people. So I think it's important, that's a really good reminder that you just mentioned to people that you can't just take one comedian like, Dave Chappelle, however good he is, and say, this is what all comedians think like, right? Because yeah, yeah. Dave Chappelle also is in a place where he is kind of reached his pinnacle of experience and he's also in a place where he can command a certain kind of attention and a certain kind yeah, yeah. of narrative. And I don't think, and, it, and I'd like to hear that from you because you just said you're turning 60 and you're kind of in the same place as the Joe Rogans and the Seinfelds. And, and I'm saying you kind of, over the years, your comedy mm -hmm. uh, spanned the decades that theirs did. So what what is going on with that right now? Like, do you think what uh, what they're doing is kind of just cementing their popularity and their fame? Because what you what you mentioned, which is a really 
nice thing is that you have to keep changing and adapting as a comedian, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's the what the narrative demands or whether it's just the context of what your comedy is being set in or the situation that you are living in. But do you feel and i've heard this sometimes that the fame insulates you from what's going around going around mm-hmm. or maybe you just become lazy saying you know what fuck it i made it this far i don't need to change i don't need another iteration for people to consume mm-hmm. so what 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 is the sort of i i don't know what you you feel about it like what's the landscape with these more established comedians and i'm talking across age groups from like my age which would be like 40s to the 60s people in their 60s so what is happening i think she, i i saw chapel's recent film and um uh, you know, I thought it was great. And uh, people keep asking me what I thought of his gay material. It's like, he's not gay material. He just talks about gay men. And what he says is, gay men are liberal until it comes to skin color, which is a really funny line yeah. and true. Yeah. And um, really accurate. And I think that Chappelle's just doing what Chappelle does. And I think that he likes to get the sort of feedback he's he's received, both praise and also a lot of criticism. He enjoys it. He likes mm-hmm. the idea that comedy is still talked about. And he likes the idea that jokes could still change people's minds. Mm. And I think, like you said, I think Seinfeld is so famous. And he just thinks, why should I change my style? I've done, I've done pretty well. Yeah. Um, I think I'll stick with this. And I think that he had presented this joke that had offended these students in a way. Now, if he, I wish he had built, done a, a bit around it. That would have been better because mm. then it's more material for him. And... Um, and I've never seen some, I, you know, I go to like Jimmy Carr got in trouble in, in the UK recently for his Christmas video where he did a joke about gypsies. Yes, I, I read about that. I mean, he first did a trigger warning, though, to the video. So he, he, he warned people first. And then the video was called Jimmy Carr's Dark Material. So you already knew. And plus, it's Jimmy Carr. If you've been watching for 20 years, you know what he does. Yeah. So people, and, and the stuff was on his Netflix special. So it was before. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this Months was before it was criticized. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the media just picked it up and ran with it because they would sell papers. I don't know why people get interested or, or, or go with this stuff. But again, I, do, I like it because I like that comedy is still discussed. Mm. And I think that, you know, whatever is the, the age gap, whatever type of older comedians, I, think, I, I just think that they are trying desperately to stay, stay relevant because no matter how famous you are, you know that, that there's 30 or 40 behind you who are crawling up very quickly who mm. want what you have and more. And it's it's a, it's an incredibly competitive business, thank God, because it makes people sharper. Yeah. But also, uh, you know, I think there are people who respond to certain different. To, to, that's why when they compare comedians and say it during the Edinburgh Fringe, which is really a comedy festival now, when they do a review where they group through for comics in the review and then compare them it's so ridiculous because all of us are so different yeah yeah we're all attempting something unusual especially at the fringe where people are doing like you said personal stories based on past experience you know that that shows is particular and when you compare them to one another it, it, mm-hmm. you're more you're, you're better off comparing the comic to the audience that was there that night because that at least that's that one experience so yeah the I, year I, think, I went hannah gatsby won her show as the best oh, show right. at the fringe yeah and Right. I mean, that really split people, especially not with gay or lesbian. It just split people who found it, f- f- like they found it, I don't know, some people found it like, oh my God, it's new age comedy. And some people like, where's the joke, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's, again, that's that's an audience discretion, right? I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but it's, I also, that's one thing I noticed, like uh, the more political or the more um, statement your show made, it would get more pic- more reviews at the fringe. I, I don't know mm. if that's true or not. At the fringe, but, definitely, sure. I yeah. mean, if you try to take a show with, with this uh, laden with statements on the road, you might have a problem when you leave 
zone yeah. one in London and go out. And I think that, you know, I think Hannah's a great, um, I, I've only seen Hannah live on the circuit as a circuit comedian before mm -hmm. she won that award at the French. Yeah. And I thought she was very funny. And I hope she continues doing whatever she does. I don't know what she's doing right now. I don't really follow people online very much. But I do know that um, what an audience wants is to know a little bit more about the performer they're watching by the end of the show than they did at the beginning. Yeah. So if you, you can show them, reveal, as like an onion when you peel the layers back, yeah. if you can keep peeling to reveal a bit more scent or smell, as it were, the audience, I think, will respond favorably. And I think mm -hmm. that's, that's all they want. They want also to be confident Mm. that you know what you're doing it's i know it's, it's it's a bit hack probably but i tell what i think is a strong joke at the very beginning of my set so that then i can take them where i want they just want to know that you can do it and then they're not mm. going to be embarrassed because it's a real thing in the us and the uk too about oh about the idea of ooh, watching someone and cringing because they don't know what they're doing it's, it's almost really like you're the helmsman, right? You're like you're, the, you're in control yeah. of the cruise and you take them yeah. on these waters, even if it's choppy, but if they know what you're doing, they're like, yeah, yeah. this guy is a good pilot and he knows uh, or she knows they, the, their way around this and, as opposed to well, someone who's going to fall off the, the bow of the ship. going yes. off. So you can do the safest yeah. joke, but it's going to, you know, plunge into the water. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, yeah, yeah, I yeah. think that's an amazing um, thing for people uh, to understand because you get so caught up in your material about how dark it is or edgy it is. Mm. Little do you focus on on how you're presenting it to them, right? Because you can be the yeah, most yeah. well um, sort of prepared comedian when it comes to your rehearsed your lines or you've thought you've mm. written the joke in all its iterations, every word is, but if you say it like a piece of shit. <laughs> no, it's well, we do, sometimes in London, there's so much work that I'll do three shows in a night. And by the time I've, I've run across London for the third show, my mind's spinning about all sorts of other things than the show. And when I get up on stage there, I forget for a moment sometimes that this is that audience's only comedy show that night. Mm. And this might be the only comedy show some of them have ever seen. So it's a big night for some of these people. Yeah. And you have to make it a big night for them. And it's not just, I mean, for us, it becomes a job sometimes where we just, yeah. you know, appear. But you have to remember that it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fresh experience for them. Likely, the likelihood is. And so I, I try to sometimes, you know, I try to get there a bit early and just watch the show from their angle. I try to stand behind them and kind of get a feeling, a temperature for the room before I go up. It's just for, the, for them so that the, the show is alive. It's not just this just dead animal I'm throwing on stage and kicking around. It's, it's something that they can enjoy and, and they can be playful too. I, I just yeah. want to play with them a little bit for 20, 25 minutes or half hour. Because you come, sometimes you're saying, yeah, you get overwhelmed with your own journey, saying, oh, that joke didn't do well. I, I That person did hard, killed harder. And when you come for this show, you're carrying all that baggage. And I think mm -hmm. you forget that, wait a second, these are a new audience and they have their own stories going on. Mm -hmm. I think it happens, yeah. And, and and just to sort of lead into that, because you're a, a regular at the Comedy Store, which for people who haven't been to London is a sort of big club there. Of course, they have one in, in, in California, but this is a different one. So I, I want to ask you, what, I think there are a few things to sort of talk about here. One is, how has it been after the lockdown? Has, has the store um, sort of, did it take a big hit? And maybe, yeah, maybe how that has been for you, uh, having a regular gig there. Well, I think... Um, I think the store is doing all right now. They have reopened. And I think mm. that they had a bit, of, well, the famous slaves in the press, they had a bit of help from the UK government, as a lot of businesses did to keep them afloat during the pandemic. And um, 
what I've heard about some of the larger clubs is that they had to make an agreement with the UK government when they took this funding that they would represent the communities more. So when they reopened, they would have a more diverse bill, which they have. Okay. The Comedia in, in Brighton, the Comedy Store here, and I think some of the other larger clubs. The Glee might have agreed to this as well. And so the bills are intentionally diverse now with um, comedians, some of whom I've never heard of. And I, I dropped by to watch the show at the store. And it was what, the, what, I, what I thought the strategy might have been was they mixed the diverse comedians with some more experienced ones. Yeah. So they always got a taste of, of all sorts of comedy, which I thought was fantastic. Yeah. So what they're seeing now, the night I was there, was a very, very experienced, well-loved comedian hosting the show. Hmm. And opening the, the the show and putting on somebody at first, and the, the middle acts, the, the, kind of the safer spots, because the audience is a bit well oiled at that point. Yeah, yeah. And so those comedians were a bit fresher, a bit newer to the scenes. People again, I hadn't heard of, and they did really well. The audience kind of, when a woman walked on stage, I won't tell you her name. I, I don't want to represent anybody, but when she walked on stage, you were said, I heard a. <gasps> Uh, an, an enthusiastic intake of air because it might have been the women in the audience thinking, oh, finally, a female on stage, you know? Yeah. And yeah. then, and that same reaction with the other comics, who one of whom was a, a, another woman of mixed race, and then another guy. So, you know, these are comedians, that, uh, young for one thing, that, that, that this audience may have never seen. It. There was just so much enthusiasm and excitement in the room. There was mm. a buzz. Nice. And then the closing act was again a very, very experienced comedian who's fantastic and rips the roof off every time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the no, audience was assured that they were what they were seeing was a show that opened well and closed well. The middle part, we don't know. And I love that they're taking that risk. Thank God. Yeah. Finally, you know. I mean, it gives everybody a chance, right? And it, sure. it may mean a little bit less work for someone like me who's been around for quite a while. But, you know, I'll find work elsewhere. Uh, you know, I got this GB News thing. I may do something else. I'm, I'm going back to the US. I'll tour. I'll figure it out. Mm. And what I like is that it's it's like taking comedy and giving it a refresh on your computer screen, hitting that button that kind of downloads the homepage again. And it's all a bit different. It's kind of the same, but it looks brighter and seems a bit more contemporary. Yeah, yeah. So great. Look, it, it's still a, a room full of people who want to hear jokes. That's never going to change. And that's what I like about the, the I mean, that the early sort of exposure early on I had to uh, career comics, especially not the ones who are doing arenas or stadiums. Like I'm talking about the likes of like a Michael McIntyre or I think were the, were the comedians I met who came down from London to Bombay for the comedy store. And one thing I noticed is even though they might have done that same bit for 20 years or they might be a little disillusioned by the industry and they might not like what is happening and how they got passed over by an agent or whatever. When they deliver the joke or they do their set, man, it feels like they're doing it for the first time. Like and that energy, mm. it's 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 flawless. And a person mm. like me, who was a, who at that point was a comedian starting out, to an audience member, just feels like they are giving their best performance for them. You know, and that feels so good. It's great. You know, yeah. my husband works at a comedy club that I perform in a lot. I think you mm. might have done the set there, top secret comedy. No, you told me about it, but I didn't get a chance because I had just come right. off that 30-day fringe and I was like, no comedy for my right. for, for the rest of my well, life. Well, in return, I'd, I'd, love to, I'd love to see you there. I think you'd really enjoy it. There's two rooms now. It's great. I'd love to and come very, back. And a very yeah. youthful audience. But he sees a lot of comedy, you know. And some nights I'll go and just watch a show. I'll go to meet him there. And if I'm not working, I'll just sit mm. and watch the entire show. It's so much fun to watch yeah. a comedy show when you're not working. 
Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's just like you said, it feels so um, like the first time they've told it. And it's so interesting to see how they're going to weave uh, their own personal experience through through an idea, through a story and where they're going with this. It, what, what I love about British comedy, too, is a lot of times there's so much wordplay that you don't know when the joke starts. Yeah. Where it's going. You can't tell where the end game is going to be, which is really a thrill. So, yeah, I really, I, I envy comedians, especially at the fringe where they can see 20 or 30 comics in, in a week's time. I think it's, it's great. And I envy yeah. that they get an experience that's every year, you know, because we're, so, we're working so hard up there that we don't really notice what's going on around us outside of our show. Yeah. But what's no, happening is new art being created all the time, which is a thrill. It's quite an energy. Yeah. No, it's, it's quite sometimes, you know, a little bit like I'm like, oh, I wish, you know. I don't know if you experienced this because um, you've been doing it now. You said since nine, the nineties, so it's almost thirty years. Ninety-four, so almost just about thirty years. Yeah. Um, you kind of, you know, you get all these peripheral thoughts when you do comedy, right? Whether it's the fame, people passing you, you getting passed on for for, for someone else, you hitting a rut with your jokes, you're kind of going through an identity crisis, you kind of having a run of really good shows, but then you have a slump. So. You've obviously navigated the highs and the lows, the plateauing, all of that. Uh, what would you say has been kind of your strongest um, undercurrent or guiding principle or pillar which has taken you through all these? Um, I mean, if you've had these iterations or these changes, or I'm, I can pretty confidently say you've you've had it because if you, you're an artist and you are still performing with the free expression, you've definitely had some form of it. So, what has been a sort of pillar of strength for you through it all? Like um, maybe a trait, whatever you want to, um, you, you've had experience in in your life. I think um, my husband's been incredibly supportive and helpful. That's that's a real. If you have support at home for what you do. Mm. It really, it, it it it's like it's like a soft bed to fall back on. It mm. is because you know I think we're our own worst enemy, comedians. I think we can say that our parents were difficult when we were children, or that our relationships with business people are hard, or that producers and promoters don't understand us. I think the I think what stands in our own way is us. And when I when I've been around people who are much more successful than me, mm. uh, comedians I know kind of well who are who have just become you know, have exploded. Oftentimes what I notice in conversation with them is they don't focus on barriers. They don't talk about a wall they had to overcome. They don't talk about something that blocked them. Everything is an experience that moves them forward. Right. And I think that's a, I tr that's a pillar for me in my mind. I try to, if something happens that seems negative at the time, I try to think, how is this informing me? Yeah. And, um, you know, when I've had, I've had some pretty devastating failure, failures at the Edinburgh Fringe, shows I've written um, that I thought were just exemplary, that just either were ignored or called garbage. Mm. And when that's happened, that's, that was what I'm thinking when you're talking about criticism. When that's happened in the press, and I've been, I, really, I think karma is more about how you deal with stuff, not what happens to you. Yeah. So really, it was about me taking that criticism in and seeing where that led me mm -hmm. and it's you know i don't i when i think oh god i'd like to do this and that and that and i write out a list of stuff i got to achieve i realize i've done most of it so i think i've been quite lucky nice and um what i'm trying to do now is is enjoy what i do and so i'm turning gigs down mm. 
and, which I don't usually do because I'm a bit, I'm, I'm, I'm a comedy whore. I, I work as often as I can, but I'm saying no to certain things. Yeah. And I'm saying yes to things I might not have said yes to in the past because I want to do something unexpected to my, to myself. So I'm going in directions I wouldn't usually go. Mm. And um, like being contracted, I've never had a pay stub. I'm under contract now. I'm basically on call with a TV network. And it's a strange feeling. It's making me feel like I'm like, just tell my husband, I'm feeling a bit kind of claustrophobic, like I'm in a little box right now. But mm. I'm trying to see where the, I'm trying to find the windows. Yeah. I'm trying to see yeah. how, how to open it up. No, that's really refreshing to hear because sometimes you kind of, as you said, you're your worst enemy and you're treating every experience going, oh, man, world sucks. Again, I got passed over. It's not, and you start finding things to blame, whether it's your past, whether it's the audience, whether it's society going, oh, they don't get me. I, you know, I'll never be understood. And the, the only person who, who kind of um, gets sort of screwed by that way of thinking is you, right? No the common else. element in all that is, is you. Yeah. <laughs> You're the only one who's in all that stuff. So it's probably, no, you know, Ayurvedically, you know, I've been following Ayurvedic practice for last year. And one thing you don't want to think of is, oh, I broke this or I caused this. Or, it's not, it's a, this is the condition. Yeah. This is where we're at now. So what are we doing? You mm. know, this thing has, this has not achieved what I wanted to. So how do I make that happen? And this is when I meet young people who are on social media so often now and using it so effectively. I'm like, oh my, I can't even make my headphones work as you saw earlier. But I see so young people on social media making it like, you know, making TikTok and all that stuff work for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I hear older comedians complaining about it, but it's just because they don't fucking know how to do it. That's all it is. It's their lack of knowledge. Absolutely. And I can, yeah. If they could I use mean, it to their benefit, they would, you know. I think it's also respect to uh, people who've really cracked a formula that works for them. I think yeah. instead of being envious, I think which is the natural instinct, going ah, stupid damn platform, it doesn't, it's it, it's ruining people's mind. I think if you take pause and say, you know, wait a second, it, the way they edit that, I mean, I'm blown away sometimes how they multitask. They can cut, they can crop, yeah. they can hashtag, they can they can title, and it's a full time job. And they're able, it I mean, while it may be a sign of attention deficit, that they use that attention deficit to make a <laughs> lot of content, and I'm just like, yeah. whoa. If I try putting up one Insta story and track it and tag it and respond to comments, I get a headache. Like, I'm like, whoa, I know. it's too fast. That takes me a few days. Yeah. No, it's it's like... <laughs> I have a friend of mine who's on Twitter, like, you know, he's on Twitter 20 times a day and he's mm. got a YouTube channel where he releases a video every few days. And some of his videos are 14 minutes long of him talking to camera. He's also got 38,000 followers on YouTube for a reason. And he's yeah. making income on YouTube because he works at it really hard. Yeah. I put on one video a week and I feel like I should get an award or keys to the city or something. Because I've done that one thing. So <laughs> Which I, we don't know, get, yeah. yeah. Well, for me, live performance is still what I, what I think about the most. That's so. So I want to ask you, you know, the... the I don't know if there's a contrast, but of course, you know, times have changed. I don't want to like say, oh, back in the day, how was it? But with YouTube, with, uh, you know, the platforms, with conventional media moving over to these new platforms, how has it been for you as a road comic, like, um, or a traveling comedian, whatever the word or the, the, the label may be, um, kind of managing like your revenue? Like, have, have you relied entirely on stand-up? Has that been your bread and butter? Or do you kind of find yeah. side gigs to get you money and you just love stand-up because it's, it's what you love doing? Well, we did really well on IGTV during the year of 2020 to 2021. We, okay. we, a lot of people contributed. We, my husband and I were surprised. 
hmm, we did all right. <laughs> it made me nice. think maybe I should just do this. But um, <laughs> nice. Yeah, but then you know, live performance came back, and uh, I do okay in California again because I do local radio there, which sells tickets. It's really strange, but it does. So I can tour around different parts of the U.S. and do my own show, which is nice. And then, oh, excellent! Thank God for wineries and breweries. I don't drink, but breweries all build these ridiculously expensive beautiful stages in them for live music and then don't use them because all because they're brewmasters and all they're thinking about is their brew so if you go to them and say can i do a comedy show they're like yeah 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 just do it i don't want to know and then you keep the door and they don't care they just want people drinking their booze so there's a way to manipulate your current circumstance i've always been okay i'm italian genovese by the way so and we're good at making money so i've always been all right right at creating an income i'm not obviously not rich i'm talking to you but I've always been. <laughs> Whoa, okay. I was going to say, I've always been prepared and, and capable of paying my mortgage. That's really been... good. No, I mean, I'm trying to understand as someone in a, in a kind of a, a, a new comedy scene, which has more elements than the US mm -hmm. or the UK comedy scene, where, of course, there are different dynamics there. There are different elements that are different. But here, we might be all Indian and we might be of the same race, but. Uh, there is language which is so diverse in India. So they, they have also the, the, the socioeconomic reach, which is you have tier one cities, tier two cities, tier three. Then you have within that, you have the different people who think in English, speak in English, people who think. So it's just so many different things. I'm just trying to understand because it, before the lockdown, I got to a place going, man, I'm focusing more on the the things that aren't important, like who's famous, who's not, who's got this platform, who's doing better, who's selling our tickets. And that time when I had a reset during the lockdown has given me a fresh perspective. So hearing this again from someone who's done it for so many years like you is just a breath of fresh air and a reminder of why I do yeah. this. Because my focus like you has always been I love doing live shows, whether it's 10 people or 40 people. I haven't done arenas or stadiums, but I love every show I've done. And of course, um, reminding yourself of this is really important, you know? Yeah, it is. And I think I think a lot of people went through a refresh during the year 2020 to 21. I think some people left the business because they thought, they thought, why am I working so hard to be, to feel underappreciated? And that's fine. They made that choice. Yeah. I, like I said, right before the pandemic, my husband and I were talking about sort of a semi-retirement because we want to get a dog. We want to slow down. We're flying around so much. We're very active all that way. Yeah. And we thought, is this, is this the life we want? Should we rethink? And, um, and then when everything was ripped away from me immediately, that was a refresh because I thought, wait a minute, I really miss that expression that was restorative to me to be able to do stand up, to clear my mind and talk about things on a, on a stage in front of people and try to work stuff out. So it, it, it reminded me how important live performance was for me, for the audience, for the world. And, and it's one of the few places where you can talk about issues most people won't discuss at a dinner party or in an office where you can work out political differences and socioeconomic concerns that people have in, in a comedic way. That's really, for some people, the most effective way to solve a problem. So it put me back on stage appreciatively. And it made me, it forced me and probably you and a lot of us to reconsider, how, like you said, how we can make an income, which I liked. And then I've always been a bit lucky professionally. So when I first started out, when I very first started, I was still an actor. And I was in a couple of films that catapulted me onto a mainstream comedy stage as a headliner. Wow. It was really the films that made people think I could do that. And right. luckily, because I'd been an actor for so long, and because I had so much stage time under my belt already because of AIDS, thank God for AIDS, it made me the comic I never would have been. 
with AIDS, we had to do all these benefit performances. And there were so few comics that were working the mainstream that were openly gay. I was being flown all over the, the country to do mm. to perform at the Dorothy Chandler, Pav Chandler Pavilion in fucking DC in New York in front of, like I said, a thousand people to do a 20 minute set. I've been doing comedy for two years, but there yeah. were no other gay men doing it. So we got an AIDS benefit, put the queer up, let him close, <laughs> fingers crossed. And of course the audience, oh, he's gay and he's still alive. You know, that was on my side too. I'm uh, sure they were kowtowing a lot to me because I was white and queer and, and still breathing. So thank God there's no... I mean, but you... you know, I mean, cancer. I, take whatever you get at that point. Well, exactly. <laughs> like we said earlier. So, you know, and because I had that stage time under my belt, when when, when Mrs. Doubtfire opened and when Star Wars opened, I was able, you know, I was, I was able. May not, maybe not have been the best headliner choice, but I was capable. So that those things have always rolled my way, fortunately. So now this TV thing I'm doing now sort of happened after the pandemic, mm -hmm. and I'm sort of taking advantage of it to see where this right. goes, because a lot of the clubs in, in the UK have not reopened, or, or those that have are, you know, they're struggling for a while financially, so the salaries are not as high as they were before. We're waiting for them to catch up. And in the meantime, this is, this is how we're getting by. And I always trust that at some point something else is going to... I never... I've never had a money problem. I've been doing live performance for almost 30 years and it's never been, but I don't have kids. There's that. So yeah. I know if I had kids, it, it would have been a different story. Yeah, it's, it's encouraging though. I mean, to hear for someone like me who's been in it for 12, 13 years or someone listening right now has been in it for five years that you have to be smart about it. You can't just say, you know, turn down gigs because, oh, you know, I, I can only do dark material. You have to adapt. But just to know that you can do live gigs and you don't have to be... Um, you know, managed by man massive agencies and be on all these reality shows. That's not the only route. Well, that is an, no, God, that is an no, option. Just yeah. do what you like. Do what yeah. you want and hope the audience finds you. That's always the case. And also, you you have you have offspring now. You have meatloaf you have to look after. And that's... Yeah, not yet. Change. Soon. <laughs> yeah. Actually, no, well, by the time this episode's out, maybe the little one will be out by then. <laughs> oh, sweet. But yeah. it will change. It's like, getting a, it's like getting a law degree. Watch my husband struggling with it. It will change who you are and what you talk about. And that's going to put a, 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 an amount of pressure on you. Maybe you've expected, maybe you don't, I don't know. But again... You know, my biggest you know, problem, Scott, like that, on that front is, you know, sometimes now when I'm doing Zoom shows or corporate shows just after the lockdown, people are calling. I kind of go back to old material, like from what I've been doing at earlier corporates. And I'm just like watching myself as an outsider performing these jokes. And I'm like, I don't feel them at all. But then I did this fundraiser a couple of weeks back. And I mean, of course, a lot of it was... Um, I mean, I'd say a good 30, 40% was some of the corporate stuff I do. But some of the new stuff I tried, it's not brand new, but it's some of the stuff I was working out just before the lockdown when we could uh, get on stage. I really enjoyed that. And that thrill made me feel really happy. It wasn't like a proper, well uh, put together set. It was just, I was dropping these one liners here, doing a little story there. That energy getting it back going, this is the thrill of doing something which you're not sure is going to work and it working and people laughing as opposed to just doing the stuff on autopilot going, oh, yeah, here we go. They're the, keeping the paycheck in mind. And I'm really glad that I could do that. You know, and I'm I'm excited. As you said, these things happen yeah. and you, you you kind of are faced in a new faced with a new chapter in life. And, and that's the excitement of what is that going to let me talk about, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think the audience can tell. They can sense that enthusiasm. And I think that's why it's always great Sometimes I'll open with some new gags because yeah. it, it, it ups the energy for me. And if they go, especially if they go well, yeah, and um, yeah. and the audience can tell that you feel excited about this and that to you, this feels like it feels new. They really mm. get into it. Yeah. It, 
that's why I think the Edinburgh Fringe is so fun. That's why I've done so many of them. Mm. I know the stress of writing a new show and all the torture of rehearsing it, getting it right. But when you go and after a week or two up there, you're doing it every day, the same venue, when you feel it starts to fall into place, it's so great, such a fantastic... And when you feel like this will be an hour I can now tour for the next eight or 10 or 12 months and enjoy. Yeah. And I think one great thing about new material too is especially because you might have 30 or 60 minutes on stage. If the show is well written, even if it's not ready, but if it's good and it's real, you can feel it grow as the mm. festival takes off. You can actually feel the show expand like a balloon. And, and it, like with your air blowing into it, like it, it feels like, and, and then like a hot air balloon, although that's a bad term for comedy, but, but, but like it, it feels like, it's, like it takes off at some point. Yeah. It really feels, yeah. I, I love that. No, it's, I, I totally, I mean, my show didn't get any reviews. People are like, why do you go spend so much money there? And like, I don't, you know, they're like, you know, no one cares about the fringe in India. And I heard all the statements. But when I came back and did that show, it felt like, it felt effortless. Like it felt like a second nature to me, like because I'd practiced that show, even though when it went to the fringe, it wasn't ready. But when I came back, I was a master of that show. Maybe not the <laughs> best show I've written, but I felt so good doing it. I could yeah. literally... Uh, not think about it, but the timing was perfect. The yeah, delivery yeah. was great. Uh, I didn't have to grab for words. It was not, I had, and I hadn't written down the show at all. It, I went in the way I typically go. It was just points. I said those points over and over for 20 odd days and <laughs> it just came together. And I was like, I completely understand what you're saying. It's like this person has, the, 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 it's, this, this the entity has grown with you and now you can yeah. just sort of enjoy that experience over multiple weeks or months to decide how many shows you decided to do. It's, it's fantastic. So yeah. are you, uh, what's plans next? I mean, are you going to go to the Fringe this year? What's the thing with, uh, what show can people expect, especially um, oh, right. if you're listening right now in the UK, just do a plug for whatever you're doing? All right. Uh, I'm just doing some, uh, the, like I said, that GB stuff. And then I'm doing um, some solo stuff coming up. I'm going to Berlin this weekend ah, to do some nice. shows. There. And then um, Ireland, and then going to Northern Europe, Sweden, and Denmark to do some stuff uh, oh, in May. Oh, nice. So yeah, be back open. Yeah. Yeah, be good. And then I'm going to Lisbon to do some things just around Europe and in London. I try to do as many solo shows as possible. And then we go back to the U.S. where I only do solo things. Right. And um, we're there for a few months. And we come back here. And we, we want to spend Christmas in a warm climate. Yeah. That's our intent. Come to India, and then, right here. <laughs> yeah, that's it. My husband's going to go visit his family in Brazil. You know, we're, we're trying, as the pandemic um, subsides, we're trying to get some of that. Well, I had to cancel so many gigs in 2020. I'm trying mm. to regain them. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Oh, that must have burnt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How about you? Um, yeah, not not much planned. I uh, Work-wise, I'm doing this. I'm really enjoying this. I'm going to continue doing this because, of course, I can do it from home a uh, couple of shows here and there but i'm not doing anything left in april i don't know when this is going to come out but april i'm waiting for um, you know my wife might go uh, like anytime after i don't know when this comes out but like second half of april early may is when our baby's due so um, i'm not taking anything up till then and even after um, I, I don't know if I, I'm allowed to take anything on, so I've asked my wife <laughs> because she's suddenly, where are you? I need your help. And I'm like, I'm on stage just having a good <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> so maybe t I, I think my next confirmed gig is on the 18th of May, if I'm not mistaken. But yeah, I'm excited to write a new show, uh, continue doing this podcast. And just, I think something has changed in me and I'm excited to share that with uh, people 
who come to watch my show and also share that with people who I consider a friend. Like, even though we've never sort of grown up in the same city, just met a few times, but we just sort of, sort of got along on a certain wavelength. And I was so excited when you said you want to get on the show and talk. And this is uh, what keeps me going. So I think on that note, Scott, I really appreciate you for everything you've done and for everything you helped me with. And uh, all the best for, you know, and uh, for your husband and you, your future and your plans and uh, for your live gigs. Good luck. And thanks so much for Thank being on this episode with me. Thank you. Namaste. Good luck with your kid. Thank you. I let you know when um, I'm pretty confident it's a girl. They don't let us know in India what the gender is, but really, I'm pretty, yeah, they don't tell us because you know, some many Indians don't um, don't like to have baby girls. I mean, it's a stupid thing, but yeah, they're a bunch of cunts. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we're not that, well, so we're excited. In respect. Thank you, my friend. Yeah. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, hope, hopefully you come to India or I get to London uh, and we meet again and go for a nice meal and. Uh, get on stage together. Remember the show we did together in Bangalore was called The Minority Report because I think for the first time it was a gay guy and a blind guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was so much I remember fun. that the only criticism I got from the audience I think was a woman who asked why I made fun of marriage, how I could do that. It wasn't about the, that it was gay or marriage equality. None of that. She, she older lady, she's like, I don't see anything funny about marriage. How could you do that? I don't think that's funny. Oh. Which was hilarious. And your show at that point was called Islam Homophobia and I was like, that's brave doing it in India at that point. But you really got the audience you wanted, I think, that really nice kind of crowd. Listen, I have nothing but fond memories about that experience. And I would, yeah. I would love to go back there. I really enjoyed the time. Do come that. back. Give me a heads up because you know what? I think I sort of got to this place where I, you don't need to be a comedy producer. You don't have to be. I think with the number of years I've done comedy, especially in Bangalore and a couple of other cities with friends who are comedians, you know, you let me know uh, in advance how many shows you want to do, what sort of numbers you're looking at, like 50 seaters, 100 seaters. You know, you and I can tour, do it. Let's let's put it together. And if you I'd want, love to. Yeah. yeah. So I'm excited about that. Uh, stay in touch. Uh, good luck with everything. Right. And um, yeah, I'll let you know when uh, uh, things you know uh, open up. And I'm traveling, or you're traveling, and let's 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 do some live gigs together. I'd love to. All right. Good luck. Thanks, Scott. All the best. Talk to you soon. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you heard, please do check out the other episodes on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. And I would much appreciate it if you could like the video, share it with people who you think might enjoy it. And of course, do subscribe to the channel because it will help me and the podcast grow and reach more people just like you. So thanks again. Appreciate it.